0: So excited to be here with you today. Uh, Praise be to God that we get to enter into his courts with praise today, right? And it's not the courts of the Lord aren't, you know, um, an auditorium in a middle school, but it's as God's people gather together and we sing his praises. So let's just give a a clap. Thanks to uh, Hang and the worship team. I love that uh, our pursuits, one of our pursuits here is passionate worship. Our Lord deserves all our passion, all of our desire, all of our praise, all of our energy because he's given it all up for us and we can offer our bodies as living sacrifices back to him. Well, today's a special day being Father's Day, being Juneteenth, all landing here and we celebrate our God and Father who's loved us and adopted us into his family and we also celebrate our our liberator, King Jesus, who set us free from sin and death and has given freedom to all mankind. Praise be to God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today, we're gonna to begin a journey in the book of Acts. So I invite you to open to Acts chapter one. If you'd like to use one of the Bibles that we've got provided to your right over there, I believe it's around page 530. I tried to mark that in my brain and I think it's around that, that spot. Page 530, we'd love to have you join us and see with your own eyes the scripture as we share this today. And, and today we're starting a series uh, through the first two chapters of the book of Acts. It's called origin story, origin story. And the definition of origin, it's a, a rise, beginning, or a derivation from a source. The point at which something begins or arises. You think of the origin, right? A lot of times there's debate with scientists and, and biblical scholars about the origin of the earth. We believe that God created it uh, by his voice, by his command, and, and science is, is compatible with that, that we can study the origin of our world, right? But this idea of origin story takes on a little bit of a different meaning. Uh, it's a backstory or it's an established background narrative that informs the identity and motivations of heroes and villains, often in a comic book or similar fictional work. And so if you've been watching, if you like to stream various shows and movies, my family, we've been a fan of the the Marvel series that have been coming out for the last, what, 10 to to 15 years, and I love to see the origin stories of some of these superheroes. And so I've actually got some images that I think we'll share uh, to come up. All right, what's this one, right? Batman. Well, that's DC. I'm sorry. I don't mean to get our universes mixed up here, but this is Batman right here, right? And we know Batman's origin story. It's a fascinating story. And I think over the last 25 to 30 years, it's been retold like 85 times or something like that. There's a new movie coming out with the new origin story of Batman, but he's Bruce Wayne as a child, a a rich, uh, wealthy child inherited a great wealth from his parents. His parents were killed and it causes him to become this like defender of justice in Gotham City, right? Well, I've got another image for you. What do we got here? Spider-Man, right? The, The wonderful, marvelous, fantastic Magnificent Spider-Man, and we know that he's just simply Peter Parker, a a high school student in Queens, New York. Yeah, sorry, I don't mean to give his identity away, right? But how many times has this origin story been retold, right, over the last 30 years as well? We've got Spider-Man. Let's see, I've got another one here. What's the next one? Oh, how about this guy, right? This guy is like one of my favorite characters in all of movie Hollywood history, Darth Vader. I mean, he's an amazing story. And if you haven't seen the series, uh, close your ears because I'm about to give a spoiler. That's Anakin Skywalker. I'll give you another story. His son is Luke Skywalker, all right? Uh, but Darth Vader and his origin story, he's supposed to be a good guy and then he gets overtaken uh, by the forces of evil and the dark side of the force and becomes the dark lord of the Sith, Dark Darth Vader. Uh, but here's, here's an interesting one. Think about some of the origin stories of the companies that, that become very prominent in our society, right? Let, let's take a look at another image here and I'll move out of the way. It's not a super clear picture, but how many of you could see that image on the upper left, right? What does that say? Amazon.com, that's Jeff Bezos. 1994, as he's starting his new company, Amazon.com, and you could see the meager things that he's working with, and now today, Amazon is one of the greatest companies on the planet, and I believe he's the wealthiest man or person in the world, and here he is starting out, and here's his origin story or an image of his origin story. Story. And so when we think about these origin stories, we see the, the superheroes, we see the villains, we see the, the large companies and these wealthy people, but we wonder, how did they start out? Think about our origin story. You know, this September, we're going to be celebrating our 10th anniversary here at Fairfax Bible Church. I don't think Jeff's going to come to that, but we'll see. Uh, I sure would love if he came and gave an offering that Sunday. That'd be pretty awesome, right? (laughs) But uh, we we think about our origin story, but, but let's think a little bit further, right? Because we're not the only church in Fairfax. We're not the only church in, the, in northern Virginia and the greater uh, D.C. area. We're not the only church in, in the United States nor, nor in the world. I mean, this church is a global, a global enterprise. And we think, where did this come from? When did it start? And over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking a look specifically at Acts chapter 1 and 2 at our origin story. Where did the church come from? We're going to be looking at the key persons that, that were involved here, starting today with the man himself, the God-man, Jesus, the Christ, and we're going to be seeing how the apostles began and, and when the Holy Spirit was sent and the first believers, who were they? What did they do? What did they believe and, and what did they become? And the significant events that birthed the church, uh, the ascension of Jesus to heaven, the, the Spirit's arrival at Pentecost, and that first gospel sermon. So as we look at these first two chapters, and we're going to start with the very first verses in the book of Acts, we're going to ask ourselves, what is our origin story? Because I believe that story informs not just where we came from, but where we're going. Our mission and it informs where, what we're called to do as we live out the commands and, and the mission of Jesus Christ in Fairfax and in Fairfax County and in Northern Virginia and in D.C. and all throughout this world as we partner with other like-minded churches to say, our origin story is found here. And this drives and informs our mission. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to ask for God's blessing. JT's, now, I'm going to ask it again, and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask, would you open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your law? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Follow along with me as I read aloud Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. This is the word of the Lord. And here we've got Luke, uh, the author of this book, who's starting out his account. You can kind of see here, this is the second part of this series. It's a two-part series, right, that, that Luke is writing. And what was the first part? Well, it's the gospel of Luke. And I think some of the pastors and ministers that have come through Fairfax Bible over the last year, they've been teaching from segments of, of Luke, which I praise God for. But, but we see here, this is the second part. And so we've got to ask ourselves, well, what was the first part all about? How do these two link together. And so I actually would invite you, let's take a look then, what was that first book all about? And how does that inform how we understand the book of Acts? So back in Luke chapter one, verses one through four, I think we've got it here. Great. It says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also... Having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught." And I'm not going to spend too much time here, but we get an idea. What's Luke seeking to accomplish? Well, he's saying, hey, I've written down some things for you because I know that you've been taught the message, the word of the Lord, uh, of the gospel from the apostles. And you've heard it, but you probably thought to yourself, is this real? Is this true? This, this man that, that walked through uh, uh, Palestine for a certain amount of years and, and did miracles and did signs and wonders and, and spoke uh, amazing words, and then I've heard about this guy that he died and rose from the dead. Can I really be sure about this? Theophilus is someone who we, we think is a believer, probably a man of, of, of high standing who had a lot of influence, and Luke thought, if I can help him have some certainty, I know the influence that he has. And he could spread this message so that others can have certainty. And so Luke, the doctor, he gets, he gets going and he's doing his research and he's doing this scientific analysis and data and he's collecting information and collecting eyewitness accounts and writing them down in an orderly way so that not only Theophilus, but those under Theophilus' influence can have certainty about the things that were written, certainty about this message about Jesus who is the Christ. And so we take Luke, Acts, and it, it's a little unfortunate in our Bibles that we've got Luke, John, and then Acts. I think it's maybe a more helpful way for us to read Luke and Acts together as part one and part two. I think that's a very helpful way to, to look at it. But, but let's, take, let's just ask a few questions as we launch out. And I know I'm doing a lot of like groundwork here, but let's lay a foundation together so that we can really, really dig in and understand what's the message that God has for us living in 2022 from the church that existed 2,000 years ago. Well, who's the author? Obviously, I've, I've kind of given that away. It's, it's Luke. He's a companion of the Apostle Paul, uh, and he's a medical doctor, and we find that out from Colossians 4.14. So he was traveling around with the apostles and writing down these accounts. Well, who's the audience? We've said it several times. Theophilus, and that word there means lover of God, and some have thought, well, maybe he's just talking to those who are beloved of God. No, we seem to think that this is as a specific person, but what a great name, Right? I actually knew a family that named one of their kids Theophilus, lover of God. Now, I don't know if they shortened it up to Theo or whatever, but I'll, I'll leave that up to you for those that are pregnant. Hey, maybe you ought to consider Theophilus, right? <laughs> Theophilus, he's, he's likely someone of high standing. Uh, he had a broader, Luke had a broader audience in mind through Theophilus' influence. And, and so what's the purpose then? What's the purpose of this two-part series, Luke Acts? Well, the first part we see in Luke chapter one, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Things related to Jesus and the movement that followed Jesus. That's Luke's desire. And I believe, I believe if he could have believed it, if we could go back in time and say, Luke, you would never believe this. In 2022, in a land that hasn't even been discovered by the Western world yet, we're going to be gathered together in a room in Fairfax, Virginia, whatever that is, right? And we're going to be talking about the books that you wrote. And guess what, Luke? It's giving us certainty about the things that you wrote about this Jesus who is the King and Messiah. Isn't that awesome? And so here we today can have the same sort of certainty. But then what's the second part of Luke-Acts about? Well, Acts is that same writing, this eyewitness account so that Theophilus can have certainty, not just about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but what followed. Because Luke is writing and he's seeing all this happen. He's saying, this Jesus, we believe he ascended to heaven. And now this movement is spreading all over the known world at the time. I mean, it was causing quite a stir all over the Roman empire. And he's saying, I want you to know that this isn't something that just these guys, these followers of Jesus are doing. in fact, if you've ever, uh, if you've ever been to Hawaii, you know, the the, the Hawaiians there, the native Hawaiians there, they, they speak this language. It's sort of like English. It's called Pidgin, right? And it's an amazing language. And it's, sometimes it's hard to understand, but it's similar to English, right? And I've seen a Bible written in Pidgin called The Jesus Book. And what's awesome is Acts is called Jesus Guys. The works that Jesus Guys did is they spread the gospel around the, the known empire then. And, and I think that's helpful to see. And so sometimes we read this, and you may be looking in your Bibles, and it says, The Acts of the Apostles. But I believe Luke is saying, you know what? Sure, the apostles were involved, but this is really the acts of Jesus Christ. This is what he is continuing to do. Take a look at Acts chapter 1, uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 1 again. It says, in the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the implication here? Well, this is the continuation of the story, what Jesus is continuing to do and teach through the apostles and the written record of that account of how this movement spread throughout all the known world. And here we are today because Jesus is still working today. Amen? Jesus is still working today. Well, we also got to see here that there's a little bit of an overlap, and that's what we see here in these first five verses. You know, if you watch, if you stream shows and stuff like that, sometimes it's helpful if at the beginning of a new episode, they have, you know, remember last time, here's a recap of what happened, a synopsis of what happened in about 30 seconds of what happened in the last episode. Because if you're like me, I got so many things flying around in my head. If I turn on that show, I'm like, wait a minute, where did we leave off? What happened, right? And they give you that little snapshot. Here's where we left off in the story, right? Right. That's what Luke is doing for Theophilus in this second account. He said, "Let me remind you where we were." And so you see this overlap of the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, and you see almost a repeat of some of the information that's going on that we have here in the first five verses. But, but let's take a look at this overlap. What, what is it that Luke wants to remind Theophilus about as he's starting this second account that we see from the first five verses? First, it's this: Here it is: Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. You know, I didn't make a mistake back here, Theophilus. I said, he's alive. Oops, I gotta start the account over again. Well, I wasn't quite so sure. I got fooled a little bit, but, but let me tell you. No, 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 Jesus is alive. And we see that right there in, in chapter one, verse three, that, that, uh, that, uh, that Luke is giving uh, Theophilus an account to say they saw him with proofs and with signs. And in fact, if you can, let's, let's take a look at the end of Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, so we could see a little bit more in detail what Luke is talking about here. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. This is just the the end of the story here in the first volume of Luke-Acts. It says here in Luke 24, 36, as they were talking about these things, and these things are to the disciples, they walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they saw him alive, nobody else had seen him, and they ran back to the other apostles and said, we saw Jesus, we can't believe it. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace, shalom be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And and while they still believed for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? Ah, Here's more proof. And he gave them uh, a piece of broiled fish. You see, a spirit or a ghost can't eat a piece of fish. And he took it and he ate it before them. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you Of These things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the way the first volume of Luke Acts ends, this this great appearance and you can see Jesus is coming before the apostles and say, look, look at the holes in my hands, look at the holes in my feet, look at the, the hole in my side, here I am, I was dead, but I'm alive. If you don't believe me, give me a piece of that fish right there and I'll eat it for you. I'm really, really, really here. And so we see this overlap, and, and what Luke wants us to see in this recap in these first five verses, that Jesus is alive and that reliable witnesses saw him with their own eyes. Secondly, that what we see here that Luke is doing in overlapping these two stories a little bit is that Jesus is still at work. Jesus is still at work. Don't think, Theophilus, that just because I closed the book on the first volume and Jesus has ascended to heaven, and we're going to get to that next week, don't think that Jesus is done and now it's all up to the apostles. No, no, no. This movement, Theophilus, I want you to know, and by extension, what Luke wants us to know, is that this movement that has spread throughout the earth, this movement that has been tried and tested and persecuted, what Caesars and, and other rulers and emperors have tried to snuff out, Jesus has been at work, and we've got a church that spans the globe and has survived 2,000 years of church history. Now, it doesn't mean this church is perfect, but it does mean that Jesus has been at work in spite of the opposition. Jesus has been in, at work in spite of all the failures and all the weaknesses and all the faults of this church. He says, I still am at work. Praise be to God for the last year as Fairfax Bible Church has been through its transition. Even though they didn't have a senior pastor, Jesus has been at work at Fairfax Bible Church. Amen? And he's still at work today. He's still at work. His mission continues through these eyewitnesses that saw, and they went out called as apostles or messengers as they spread the good news about Jesus. Thirdly, the good news is the message of the kingdom of God. It's the message of the kingdom of God. What is this good news all about? It's, it's like a herald going about and the apostles would show up in a new city and says, I have good news for you. I know who the king of Israel is. And in fact, he's the king of the whole world. And this king doesn't come into this place trying to conquer and dominate and burn down your cities so that you would bow and force subjection to him. This is the king who came and died on a cross for you and for me so that we could be brought into his heavenly kingdom. It's the message of the kingdom." That Jesus is king. It's not a popular way too often today in our American culture, in our churches, to speak of the gospel as a message of God's kingdom. We're not too fond of kingdoms. In fact, uh, you know, over 200 years ago, our country fought to get out of a kingdom, right? But Jesus is a perfect king, and he invites us into his kingdom. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus, here he is, presenting himself alive to the apostles after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So what's the big deal about this kingdom? What, oh, why a kingdom? What, what's the big deal? Why, why do we need a kingdom? Why do we need a king? Well, again, Luke is, is emphasizing to his audience, to Theophilus, I want you to understand that what Jesus came to do was to establish and inaugurate his kingdom, the kingdom of God here on the earth. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, I think it'll be on the screen there for you, and I thank the team so much for helping me out with this. Luke chapter 4, verses 42 to 44, it says this, and when it was day, he being Jesus went into a desert place. He had spent all day healing and doing miracles for the people in Galilee. And the people sought him, and, and they came to him. And they're trying to get to Jesus because, like, hey, I got a cousin. Hey, I, I got an aunt or an uncle. I've got a mother or a spouse or someone. Or, in fact, I'm sick. I need your healing power, Jesus. Now, that was vitally important for Jesus to do. But listen to what Jesus' priority is. The people sought him, and they came to him, and he would have kept, uh, they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must, I must Preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, now Jesus came for many purposes, but he, he, he boils it down to one significant purpose I've come here to preach the good news about the kingdom of God. That was his purpose. And, and eventually, he would, he would say, not only am I preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, but I'm also going to die so that I can establish and open up this kingdom of God here on the earth. But he says, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So you can see Jesus has this focus, as, as, it, as significant as it was, to heal people. He says, I must preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. Well, it says that there in Acts 1-3, we just read it again, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So right before he ascends, he has one final little Bible study meeting with the disciples and what does he do? He says, I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God because you're going to go out and be my messengers. You're going to go out and be my heralds to go out and to declare, I am king. And I am inviting everybody, every town you go into to join my kingdom by faith and repentance in my name. In fact, this idea of the kingdom of God it doesn't show up often in the book of Acts. But we could see it's very significant because it provides the bookends of this entire book. Jesus began Acts 1 3 speaking to the apostles about the kingdom of God. And how does the entire book, this second volume of Acts, end according to Luke? Well, in Acts 28, verses 30 to 31, we see one of those messengers, the apostle Paul, who's out there. And now he's taken this good news about the kingdom all the way from Jerusalem and he's gone to Rome and he's waiting to appear before Caesar. And guess what Paul is talking about? Guess what he's declaring as a herald and a messenger for Jesus? What does it say? Acts 28, 30 to 31. He lived there in Rome under under guard as a prisoner two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So, as we look at this origin story, we first see Luke wants us to see the origin of us, the origin of you and me, Fairfax Bible Church, and every church across this globe over all time and past, present, and future. Why are we here? We're here because a message about a king and his kingdom. That is our origin story. Well, you may be asking yourself, but what is this kingdom? I mean, if you're saying we here are a representation of God's kingdom, it doesn't look like a kingdom to me. <laughs> where's the throne? Where, where's the crown? Where's all the pomp and circumstance and all this, 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 this great riches here that should go along with a kingdom, right? Well, I love this definition of the kingdom of God. This is from uh, uh, D.A. Carson. He says this, The kingdom of God refers to God's sovereign rule over his creation a rule that Jesus restores by bringing forgiveness of sins and reconciliation through his life, death, and resurrection. Though the phrase kingdom of God occurs only six times in Acts, it appears prominently at the beginning and end framing the entire book. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's a different kingdom than you and I would think. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, don't think that my kingdom is the kingdom like the Gentiles. They love to stomp around. They love to rule. They love to assert their authority. But you've heard it before. I know from this pulpit, from this stage here at Fairfax Bible Church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he's shown us a kingdom that from our perspective is completely upside down. What it really is is that we're the ones that are upside down because of our sin and our rebellion and our bucking against God and we think that we know how to rule. We think we know how to have authority better than our God does. But he says, I'm gonna show you what real rule looks like. It's bringing peace and love and hope and righteousness and true justice to people and to humanity. The kinds of love, peace, justice, and, 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 and hope that was stripped away by Satan and by Adam and Eve from that garden and, 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 and humanity's been cast out ever since. But Jesus has come to restore that kingdom back to humanity. And so this is a message about the kingdom. And that's what Luke wants us to know. But but what do you got to have in order to have a kingdom? Right? What do you got to have? Do you need a throne? Do you need a crown? You could have a kingdom without those things. One thing you cannot do without in order to have a kingdom, and that's a king. You must have a king. And Jesus, as he was preaching the good news of the kingdom all over Galilee, all over Palestine, all over Judea, he's walking there. He's announcing the good news of the kingdom. What is he announcing? I have been anointed by the Father through the Spirit to come and announce release to the prisoners. To announce good news to the poor. To announce hope for the hopeless. And that day has come. Why? Because the king is standing in your midst. I am the anointed one. I am the king who has come. And God the Father is showing through signs and wonders that I am who I say I am. And I can offer you the way into God's eternal kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without a king. Jesus announces that he is God's anointed king who was promised by God throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Through his arrival, Jesus could tell his audience that the kingdom was among them. The kingdom is in your midst. How? Jesus didn't sit on a throne. He didn't have political power, but that wasn't the nature of God's kingdom. God's kingdom from our perspective is upside down. Rather, we are upside down and we see it from a different perspective. But God shows us the truth that he has brought a good king with righteousness and justice and peace and eternal life to all who acknowledge him as Savior and as Lord and as King. And so we've gotten through all of that to get to our big idea this morning. Our risen King Jesus, he requires our allegiance and he grants us his assurance. Our risen King Jesus requires our allegiance And grants us his assurance. This is our origin story. It starts right here with a risen king showing himself through many proofs to the apostles to say, look, here I am, and I want to talk to you about this kingdom. And look at what he does. This risen king, Jesus, he required allegiance from his followers, from the apostles. Let's take a look again at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given what? Commands through the Holy Spirit. Not ideas, not recommendations, not just some advice. No, Jesus gave his followers commands. Commands from the king to his loyal subjects. In fact, it, it kind of repeats in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. We get a little bit of, a, a, of an extension of what those commands were. Acts chapter 1, verse 4. While they were staying with them, he being Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. There it is. Commands and orders. Now, those of you that are military families, you know commands and you know orders. They're not advice. They're not recommendations. They're orders to be followed. And so what we see about this king is that he's coming to his subjects and he says, I'm requiring your loyalty and your allegiance. This is a big, big ask. But look at what Jesus, this this shouldn't be new to the apostles. Look at what he said in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 verses 25 to 33. Jesus announces to the crowds that accompanied him on the way. And listen to Jesus. I mean, this would have been striking to hear him say this. It says in 14, verse 26 of Luke, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. While the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And here's what Jesus is summarizing it as. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus here in Acts chapter one, uh, verses one through five, he's saying, I'm giving you commands and I'm giving you orders. And this is non-negotiable. This is non-negotiable. I have to be the king of of your life. I require, I require your full allegiance. I require all of your devotion. I require your unwavering loyalty to me and to my name. If you're going to go out on this mission, apostles, you first have to know this. When you go out there, I have to have first place in your life. You're going to face persecutions. You're going to face trials. You're going to face opposition. And in those moments, in those moments, it will be too late if you've not made up in your mind who is your king and who is your Lord. Because if you are still holding on to anything, you will likely tuck tail and run. But I'm here to say I require your full allegiance to me and my name and the kingdom of our Father. Those who would be a part of this mission and those who would be a part of this kingdom had to first offer their complete loyalty and allegiance to the king. What would this mean for the apostles then? It would mean opposition. It would mean persecution, hardship, death. And martyrdom. him. Why? Because, and you see these apostles, and we're going to see it as the stories go along. They're so willing. They're so willing to say, Lord Jesus, you have everything. You've got all of me. Have it all, Lord. Every decision of my life, everything that I think about, my thoughts, my speech, my actions, my affections, my will. Oh, Lord Jesus, they all belong to you. Why? Because Jesus required their death complete allegiance to him. That sounds terrifying. That sounds really, really scary. That's our origin story? A king who requires complete allegiance? Well, he not only does that, but this king, this risen King Jesus, not only does he require complete allegiance, he grants us his assurance. He says, I have to have first place in your life, but guess what? I will do for you what no one else could do. I will offer you more hope that you could ever have in yourself. I will offer you more love than you could ever experience anywhere in this planet. I will give you the righteousness that you can never earn nor achieve on your own. I'm giving you my assurance, so give me your allegiance. Our risen King Jesus grants us his assurance. Well, what were some of the assurances that they had as they were getting ready to launch out on mission? Well, first of all, they had the assurance of eyewitness testimony to his resurrection. I'll tell you what, friends, I'm not willing to go and die for this Jesus if it's just kind of a rumor that he rose from the dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, some people said that they saw him. You know, they, they thought they saw him walking by the place at night. You know, they thought they saw him, you know, knocking at their neighbor's door, and then they turned their head and he was gone. I'm not dying for that, Jesus. And I don't think the apostles are either. But he said, no, 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 I'm giving you eyewitness testimony. You felt me. You saw me. You, you, you hugged me. We were together, you saw me eat that fish. You know, I've given you eyewitness testimony that I am alive. Be assured of that, I am the risen king. Well, the, the next assurance that Jesus gave them is the assurance of the scriptures that point to him. He, Jesus is saying, hey, look, this isn't a movement that's just sprung out of nowhere. I'm not creating something new. I've shared with you the holy scriptures, which at that time was just the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, and he says, I've sat down with you men. I've walked you through the Hebrew scriptures, the law of Moses and all the prophets, and I assure you that what I've come to do and what I've announced, it's not something new. It's something that's been rooted all the way back to the garden, the promises that God gave to Adam and Eve. Be assured of this, the scriptures speak about me. What was was another assurance? He says this, uh, I'm assuring you of the presence of the Holy Spirit. It, It says there in Acts chapter 1, of uh, Verse 5, he says, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. See, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. Oh, I love John chapter 14, verses 16 to 18. The disciples are getting afraid. Jesus is going away. He says, I'm not leaving you as orphans, but I'm doing something for you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to comfort, encourage, and empower you. And finally, the assurance that Jesus is giving in this moment, he says, I assure you, that although I'm going to heaven and sending the Spirit, I will come back to judge evil. I will come back to vindicate you for every opposition, every persecution. Even if your life is taken from you, I will return one day to resurrect your body and vindicate you and give justice to this whole world. Be sure of that. The King will return The king will return. He will come to judge evil and make all things new, including us. So, this Jesus, this risen King Jesus, the the very key figure of our origin story, he requires our allegiance, but he grants us his assurance. His resurrection was witnessed by eyewitness testimony. He's given us the scriptures that point to him. He's given us the spirit to comfort and guide and encourage and empower us. And he's given us the assurance that the king will return to judge evil and make all things new. Which brings us back to our big idea this morning as we close. Our risen king, Jesus, requires our allegiance and he grants us his assurance. What does that mean for Monday? What does that mean for you and me today and uh, we're getting ready to send off some people here in just a few moments that are, that are going and being sent off out of loyalty to King Jesus and assured of him of promises. Well, I think about this as an individual. You know, you think about this idea of, uh, you know, this allegiance that comes along with ins- uh, assurance. Think about your workplaces. Think about your neighbors. Think about the culture that we live in. Think about all that's going on in the news. How much more difficult it feels every single day almost to follow Jesus. And I I would say this, you know, we're here to encourage each other and love each other, but I think one of the the ways we encourage each other is to have some courage and boldness. We talked about that last week from the book of Joshua. Be strong and very courageous because the difference maker is with you. And And I love that tension. You're gonna go through hardships. It is gonna be tough. You're gonna face opposition. You're gonna have people laughing at you mocking at you. I remember one time I shared my faith with a, with a coworker years ago, 25 years ago probably. And I remember I shared the gospel with her and, and she heard about Jesus and coming to die on the cross and he never sinned and he rose from the dead. And she goes, and you believe that? I said, absolutely. She says, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. You sound nuts. You believe that? I said, I absolutely believe it with all my heart. But in that moment, I could feel the tension in my heart. I look like a fool right now. I sound like an idiot to her. She looks at me as as a weak fool that would admit his own sin and trust in that guy that lived 2,000 years ago and died on a cross and claimed to rise from the dead and I'm giving my whole life to this thing. Oh, friends, we can look like fools Just this week, I was at a car dealership, and I was talking with a a young man, and and he was a very kind young man. He was a a Muslim young man, and he was just talking about how all the religions in his perspective and in his worldview all kind of lead toward the same path, and so we've got to have respect for each other, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. But the one part I cannot agree with is that there are many lords, many gods, many paths, And I shared with him in this moment, wondering, what would he think of me? How would he look at me? But I had to declare, Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thankfully, he didn't laugh at me at this moment, but it takes some courage sometimes. But let's think about our brothers and sisters across this world, that they could confess that with their mouth, and and we might fear a little chuckle or a little mockery. It could cost them their lives. But that's what it means to follow this king, the center of our origin story, who requires our allegiance, but he grants us his assurance. As a church, in the days ahead, we want to live on mission. We want to love Christ. We want to live sent. We want to be bold in speaking about the good news of Jesus. But as we make disciples here and as we love each other, we've got to ask ourselves as we review this origin story. What do we do with this king as a congregation today? As one who is here worshiping with us in this church, I wanna ask you, does Jesus have your allegiance? Does he have your loyalty in your decisions in how you manage your body sexually and how you manage your finances and how you view entertainment Does Jesus have the allegiance of you and me and us as Fairfax Bible Church? And as we ask that question, it's scary to think about. But we can also remember that Jesus has given us his assurance. I'm alive. You have my word. I've sent my spirit. And I'm coming again. And with that, we can take that step of faith as a church, living on mission together, remembering this origin story and says, yes, King Jesus, our risen King, you have our allegiance. We receive your assurance and we will live for your mission. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus has risen from the dead. What hope we have in him. What glorious assurance we have that he is truly risen from the dead that he's given us his word, his spirit, and that he's returning again. I pray for every single one of us that we will live our lives in full allegiance, full loyalty to this king no matter the cost because he's worth it. Oh, I pray that you'd find uh, every individual, every family, uh, every education, every career, every marriage, every home here at Fairfax Bible Church, that we would reflect upon this and ask, Lord Jesus, do you have all of me? And Lord Jesus, do you have all of us? As we consider this mission that we're called to, we must bow to the King and look to him for our assurance. It's in his name, the risen King Jesus, we pray.